60 years in hiding. That was the name of the article some years ago when I read it. According to the Seattle Times, there was rumor of two Japanese soldiers that were holed up in the mountains of southern Philippines. And the word was that they were still alive, and so the Japanese uh, set out to find them, which they did. By the time they found them, they were in their 80s. The story was that they were part of a division at the end of World War II. They had been virtually devastated in that battle, and so these two soldiers ran into hiding so they too would not die. And they spent 60 years in the mountains hiding, afraid that if they ever showed their face again, they would be court-martialed. Japan was shocked by the news, uh, but it reminded them of another situation that occurred actually a few years before that. I think his name was Hiru Onoda, who had been uh, a, a soldier for Japan in World War II, went into hiding for 29 years. When they finally convinced him to come out of hiding, the report said he wept uncontrollably as he laid down his rifle, not knowing that Japan had surrendered 29 years before. Fear can do crazy things to a person. It can distort the personality. You can become loud and obnoxious and threatening and contrarian. It can make you angry. Or it can send you into hiding for 60 years. You never show your face. It almost always siphons the life out of your personality. It always suffocates whatever little joy that you have in the moment. You're always afraid. Never let yourself go. Never be what you were. Now the disciples had come together on the first day of the week and they were behind locked doors in fear of the Jews. First day of the week, the disciples had gathered, but the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Fear does not always look like fear. It has many different masks. I've put myself inside that room in my mind anyway, trying to take what little I knew of the disciples' personalities from other portions of the gospel and tried to project those onto that room when they were afraid. And however you do it, it's full of chaos and disorder. There's disruption in the way people are living. Maybe, maybe Nathaniel, because he was sitting under a tree by himself. Maybe he's in the corner uh, sort of just waiting on the world to change. He's not really engaging right now, but he's afraid. And maybe Matthew worked for the government. And maybe he's got this analytical mind. He's trying to figure things out. If I can just understand what the Jews are doing, we can out... Maybe James and John, sons of thunder, they were called. <laughs> I think I know what they were doing. <laughs> They were just shouting things, blurting things out loud. And the only one louder was probably Peter. He could be obnoxious. 
He's probably making all sorts of threats. Should have killed that soldier when I had the chance. Fear looks different on different personalities. It doesn't look the same. So you can have it for a long time and not know that you are dominated by fear. But it's fear. Have you ever asked yourself how much of what you do this morning is motivated out of fear? You wouldn't call it that. You've got some other reason, but it's fear. Fear of the government, fear of terror, fear of crime, fear of the economy, fear that someone's going to reject you. So you just sort of skirt around. And Have you ever once in your life made a good decision out of fear? So the room is full of chaos and disorder. There's bantering and threatening and hiding. And all of a sudden, Jesus just shows up, just appears. They like to try to describe how that might have happened because the doors were locked. Me, I don't care. All I know is they were behind the doors and the doors were locked out of fear of the Jews. And then Jesus showed up and the word says he stood among them. I must have read 12 or 13 different occasions where Jesus appears to people after the resurrection. More than half of them occur when the disciples are together. He has this thing for disciples being together. When they get together, his pattern is to show up. I'm not sure, I can't prove it, but I wonder if you were in the room that day and you did not already believe in him, you would not have seen him. Might be true. What we know for sure is that after he came back from the dead, he never appeared to someone who did not already believe. Think about that. He was not interested in proving to unbelievers that he was alive. He only appeared to people who were already on the way toward believing. He was trying to fortify their faith. He wasn't trying to prove something. So it might be that when the disciples are together a little wobbly, all of them know that the resurrection has happened or they know something has happened. The tomb is empty. There are witnesses, but we're not sure what. But they're behind locked doors. They're acting as though it never happened. They're they're acting as though the future has not already been decided, as though... Evil is as powerful as good. They're acting like they have to take charge of something, and if they can't, they should hide from it. Fear will do crazy things to a person. When Jesus shows up, he just says, Peace. Never says, don't be afraid. That's what angels say. What he says literally is shalom. You know, you know what the word means? It means order, beauty, 
balance, simplicity, elegance. He shows up behind locked doors and there is total chaos in the room and he steps in and just says, beauty, shalom. Raymond, Raymond Brown says, this ain't wishful thinking. He's stating a fact. He's bringing it with him. To understand this, you have to almost go back to uh, the beginning of the Old Testament where God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void. There was total chaos. And God stepped into total chaos and said, let there be. And there was. And at the end of that day, he stepped back and said, this is, help me, this good. He don't mean that ain't bad. What he means is, this is exactly the way I designed it. Then the following day, he would do the same thing. He would speak, and then he would, he would put an emphasis at the end of the day and step back and say, that is good. Literally, what he meant was, that's beautiful. That's simple. That's how I made it. That is whole. That's healthy. Dallas Willard says, the world is a perfectly good and safe place to be. <laughs> At the end of every day, Jesus stepped back and said, that's right. That's how I meant it. The world is a perfectly good and safe place to be. That's what he's doing in the room when he steps in into chaos and he says, Shalom. You're afraid, you're running, you're shooting, your mouth's off. The world is a perfectly good and safe place to be. Then he shows them his hands and his side. This remarkable. First, because he must still have the wounds, even though he's in a perfect body. Remember, Jesus is in a body at this time that Paul said in 2 Corinthians, is your heavenly dwelling. This is the body y'all hope for. He's in, and he's still got holes. So whatever we're thinking that glorified body will be as if it were somehow totally opposite from the one that we've carried with us this many years, maybe there are at least still some signs of it. But what's remarkable is not just the scars. It's that the scars are worn by one who is alive. Think about that. These are not the wounds on a corpse. These are the wounds on the living one. He carries with him wounds that he got in this life. Only in resurrection he has overcome them. So you never walk away from the room thinking about the wounds. You walk away thinking about the resurrection. Whatever they've done to him, he's overcome with the power of life. Then he says it again. He says, Shalom. And he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. This isn't just 
the handing off of the baton. What this is, is Jesus saying, everything that the Father has given me to do, I am giving to you. All of the authority that the Father gave me, I give to you. There isn't anything I had that I am not giving to you. So whatever I had to do what I did, you now have to do what I did. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. It helps here to know that in Greek or in Hebrew, the word for spirit or wind or breath is the same word. So in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth and there was chaos, it was the breath of God that hovered over the waters. It was God's breath that created life when he made the person for the first time. It was his breath, it was his spirit, it was the wind from God that breathed into him and Adam became a living soul. It helps to remember that when Jesus said to the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit, what he literally said was, and with that he breathed onto them and said, receive breath. Receive God's breath. Job said, we don't know it, but every day of our lives, we are animated by God's breath. Let me put it more bluntly. It doesn't matter whether you believe this or not. Every day of our lives, Job said, we live by the breath of God such that if he should ever withhold his breath, all of creation would die immediately. He breathed onto them and he said, receive God's breath. Then he said the craziest thing. He said, if you forgive someone their sins, they will be forgiven. And if you don't forgive someone their sins, they will not be forgiven. Man, when I read that, I thought, wow, that's a ton of power. You know, I thought he was saying, Steve, if you like someone, then you can forgive their sins. And God will wait to see what you do. And if you don't, then you don't forgive their sins and God will not forgive them either. I like that interpretation. Yeah. Because I'm thinking of Yankee fans now this morning. Yeah. Who are the people? You can just go, no, I don't think I'm ready to forgive you yet. And God waits in suspense to see what he's supposed to do. Something about that doesn't seem right, but it didn't know what it is. And then I remembered what Jesus said was, 
as the Father sent me, that's how I'm sending you. And it occurred to me that when Jesus came, he did not stand outside of a person's sins and wait for that person to confess them. He was not a priest behind a curtain where you come in and say, Jesus, forgive me for I have sinned. And then he tells you what you should do. That's not who he was. Remember, Isaiah said, he has borne our infirmities. The chastisement of his people was put upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have each wandered to our own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 and says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was no priest who stands outside the sins of others and waits for them to get it so he can forgive them when he thinks they mean it. He was a burden bearer who got underneath the sins and carried both sin and punishment. This is not a verse about power. This is a verse about a heavy responsibility. This is Jesus saying to the disciples inside that room, you're in here because you're afraid and the doors are locked and I'm going to go unlock those doors. Not so the world can come in, but so you can go out. And when you go out, you will go out as sin bearers. Get underneath the sins of your office, your homes, your cities, your dorms your kids and carry them. Oh, this was a hard word for me. I like the priest role better. Well, I've, I've spent the last few minutes loading this story so I could tell you what I think it means to us. First, I think the story is repeatable. It's cyclical. It happens every seven days. Every seven days, you may not know this, but every seven days, the disciples still gather. We worship on Sunday because Christ was raised on a Sunday. You knew that. But you may not know or have forgotten that every time we worship, we do it to signify the power of the resurrection. Did you know that? That even when the subject of resurrection never comes up, whenever the disciples gather together on the first day of the week, it is to signify the presence of the living one who is in our midst. I suspect that now as then, we will not see him with the naked eye. I remember somewhere in Ephesians 1 where Paul said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. It's possible that there is a way of seeing Jesus that is even more convincing than with the eyes of the head. 
And it's possible that today as then that if a person does not already believe or if he has not already quickened those faculties, he could be right in our midst and we'd miss him. It's possible. However that happens, this much I know is true. Whenever he comes into our midst, I think he says peace. Because I think today is then when disciples gather, we gather in fear. And because fear looks like different things on different personalities, we wouldn't call it that. We would point to some other neurosis. But I think at the base of it, so much of what motivates us is fear. And so Jesus comes into our midst and says, peace be with you. And he's not wishing you peace. He's literally bringing it with him. And the way that we get that peace, I think, if I read this right, is learning to live in the Holy Spirit. If this will make it simple for you, a little more practical, think of living in the Holy Spirit as exhaling and inhaling. There is a And then there is a, you got that? Whenever I exhale breath, I let go of the situation. Most of what happens in my life is not planned. And so because I have plans, when it doesn't line up, I go into control mode. Do you realize how much of life goes by us because we're still trying to control something that we cannot control. And so by exhale, I simply mean let go of control over the situation. You may not like it. It may not be as things ought to be, but it is still the only situation we have. You will have to live in this. Don't try to fix it. Don't explain it. Don't try to overpower it with either intellect or strength. This is the situation. Embrace it. By inhale, I mean take on or invoke or invite the Holy Spirit to live in that moment. Just like there is an exhale of letting go, there's an inhale where we consciously, internally invite the Spirit to act in that moment through us. Love, joy. I don't have to pretend that I am any of these things. I simply inhale and say, I can't do this, but through me, would you practice love and joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control? Would you do that? I can't. I think whenever we gather, we gather under the presence of the Holy Spirit who is still busy creating new. Deep in our unconscious, there are places that are hidden to us 
that are the spring of impulses and reactions that frequently overcome and they're disruptive and they're chaos. And whenever we gather, I hear him say to those deepest resources, peace. Last, I hear in this story that whenever God's people get together as we're together right now, it is his nature to send us out. Always does that. Always does that. There seems to be then two cycles to the Christian's life. One is the gathering and the other is the sending. And you know, here in our church, you guys, we spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about the gathering. I can't tell you the number of hours that goes into the gathering. That's what we're doing right now. Are we ready? Do we have something to present? Do we have something to say? Do you know the hours preachers kill getting ready for the gathering? Which makes the sending a mere dismissal. But I think I hear Jesus say, I'm about to open those doors and send you into the world. And that is just as important as anything I did in here. For you see, unless you go into the world, then what we do in here has virtually no effect on the world. The devil is quite content for you to be Christian as long as you are alone when you do it. But the moment he unlocks those doors and we go into this community, he's nervous and he should be because everything he had Everything Christ had, he has given to you. And your enemy knows full well what can happen in the world when you unleash that kind of vision and authority and power and love. I know from the past when God sends me into a meeting or into a situation I do not feel as if I've been dismissed. I never feel as if the meeting or the situation is something I got to do. I always feel when I am sent that I can't wait for the situation to be here. Because I'm going with an authority that is not my authority. And I know the feeling of, you know, I couldn't possibly screw this up. Because... It is not me who's performing in that moment. I am simply acting on orders. More than once I've paced in dark rooms before 4.30 in the morning in this building in order to come out here and say things to you. And I was, I, this might surprise you. College church, hard place to preach. Not long ago I had that conversation with God in the back room. I knew when I came out here and I said what I was supposed to say, I was going to get hammered by one side or the other. 
And then at 4.30 in the morning, this is what he said to me. You go out there and you tell them what we have agreed you should say. Not more, not less. And if you do it, I will be with you. And in that moment, I was not dismissed. Buddy, I was sent. And I remember saying, I will see you in three hours. When God sends you, you don't have to put on any kind of a bravado or some kind. You don't have to cower anymore. You don't have to exploit pieces of your personality. When God sends you, you are sent with the authority of God. There is a tremendous amount of freedom in being sent. Oh, how I wish I could make some of you feel sent. We come to the end of the service. Preacher says, and finally, <laughs> you reach for your keys. Until you've been coming about a month. Then you realize that don't mean anything in college church. <laughs> but surely when the musicians come on and they start to play that song and warm up them instruments again, we're thinking, well, we're just about done here. And immediately the mind goes to what I got to do next. It's a deadline. It's lunch. It's some kind of event. What if we left every week feeling that we were sent as much as we were gathered, that the wind was to our back, that our sanctuary is our office, it is our dorm, it's our home, it's our boardroom, it's our locker room, it's the place where we work, that is the gathering. So that whenever we were gathering, we were thinking about the sending. And then when we went to the place of sending, we were thinking about regathering. What if Christians could re capture the rhythm of being called together and then being released. Why, it would be a different place after a while. So this morning, whatever you came with, whatever your fears, whatever you've had to put on, some of you live in a performance mode. Christ is standing among us right now. Some of you just don't know it. You just don't know it. And he's unlocking the doors. And he's getting ready to send people back to where they came from. Is that you? I went reading through the Gospels this week to find places where Jesus gathered with his disciples. And I've collected a few things that Jesus has said. I want to, short, I want to read these verses over you. Would you stand to receive them? All authority in heaven and on earth 
has been given to him and he has given authority to you. Go therefore and make disciples everywhere. And as you go, preach this gospel. The kingdom of heaven (laughs) is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who are unclean, drive out evil wherever you see it. Freely you have received. Freely give. Freely give.